when love just isn't enough, give your partner the gift that keeps on giving. Sexually Transmitted Curses next on Six Ad World. Hello! No, you're not listening to Six Sad World. It's still your favorite little podcast that could, and it's still me, Trish. Daria is one of my favorite shows, and I've been binge-watching it for the millionth time, so I was very inspired with the intro for today's episode. This week, I'm breaking down the horror movie, It Follows. The basic plot of this movie is that there is this deadly curse that's passed from one person to another through sex. The curse takes human form and stalks and kills the last person who's received it. Once that person dies, it continues down the line to the person before them, and so on. This movie is pretty polarizing with audiences. I feel like people either love it or they hate it. I personally love it. (laughs) I think maybe the downfall might have been the way the movie was marketed. The trailer for the movie is pretty intense, so I think that may have been setting people up for a more action-packed, potentially gory film. It's not a slow burn by any means, but this film is definitely more geared to just maintaining this constant level of tension, suspense, and fear. It has a more psychological element to it. This feeling that is bearing down on you that you're fucked. (laughs) There is no escape. You can try, but fate is coming straight for you. There's a lot to cover on this one, some great symbolism, and it's just a really great, visually beautiful film. So let's jump right in. Released on March 27th, 2015, directed by David Robert Mitchell, with art direction by Joey Ostrander. This film takes place in the suburbs of Detroit, but the whole movie kind of feels like a dream world. It's impossible to place the time of the movie in a specific decade. It feels like this amalgamation of elements of culture, fashion, and film from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. There is hardly any modern technology or trends, movies, music except for one cell phone in the opening scene and the super cool seashell-shaped e-reader that one of the characters, Yara, is seen toting around. It's also impossible to tell what season it is. In some scenes, the trees are lush and green. In others, they're totally autumnal. The characters go from swimming outside and wearing shorts to wearing turtleneck sweaters and jackets in the next. This tactic really adds to this feeling throughout the whole film that you need to be on the edge of your seat, scanning the scene for anything or anyone that may be out of place. This movie has a really great opening scene, the action starts immediately, and there isn't much of a break once it starts. I feel like I may have mentioned this in episode 2 of the podcast when I discussed the movie The Furies, but I have a hard time with the slow burn movies, so when shit hits the fan right away, I'm a happy girl. Okay, so in the first scene, we see a girl running out of her house in shorts, a tank top, and heels. The girl, whose name is Annie, is visibly frightened and backing away from something that we can't see. Her neighbor sees her and asks her if she's okay and if she needs help. 
Annie's father also runs out after her to figure out what's going on. Annie storms away, past her father, back into the house, grabs her car keys, and drives off. We then see Annie on the sand by a lake with her back to the water, talking with her dad on the phone. She's apologizing to him for not always being nice and tells him that she loves him. You can just tell she's saying her goodbyes. She's given up here. She keeps staring off into the distance where her car is parked, red light emanating from the taillights and illuminating the landscape behind it. The next scene, we see her dead in the sand, with her right leg bent and broken in the most gruesome manner. Now we're introduced to Jamie, solely referred to as Jay in the film, who is swimming in her backyard pool, just pleasantly dissociating. Her sister Kelly appears, and Jay mentions that she's going out on a date with a guy that she's been seeing named Hugh. And I just want to point out this little Easter egg from the director, Jay, or Jamie, is a nod to Jamie Lee Curtis, and Kelly is a nod to Jamie Lee's real-life sister, Kelly Curtis. Anyway, so while she's in the pool, Jay catches a couple of young neighborhood boys peeking at her through the fence, which sort of gently introduces the idea of the male gaze and suggesting that she's already being watched. She heads inside to get ready for her date, and we're introduced to her friends, Yara and Paul. Paul, as we can immediately tell, has got it bad for Jay, while Yara is just chillin' reading Dostoevsky's The Idiot on probably one of the coolest movie props ever. As I mentioned earlier, it's this vintage makeup compact in the shape of a seashell that they transform basically into a compact Kindle or e-reader. If someone made one of these, I'd buy it immediately. I don't know how practical it is, but shit, it's cute. So Jay's getting ready for a date, rocking a puka shell necklace and a pink sundress. You go, girl. In her room, she has a really awesome vintage calla lily lamp. And I've looked online. These things are either impossible to find or ridiculously expensive. I'm talking hundreds of doll hairs. Now we finally meet Hugh. Him and Jay are waiting in line for a movie and playing a game where one of them picks someone in a crowd who they would want to trade places with, and the other has two guesses to figure out who it is that they picked. Hugh's pick is a small child standing with his mom and dad. When explaining his choice, Hugh says, how cool would it be to have your whole life ahead of you? We can deduce that Hugh is traumatized by something or has some kind of regret, and he's longing to get a do-over. When it comes time to guess who Jay picked, he asked if she picked the girl in the yellow dress standing in the back of the theater. But there is no girl standing there, at least none that Jay can see. Hugh immediately gets paranoid and freaks and asks Jay to leave. So fast forward a bit to their second date, they're by a lake, making out, and eventually Jay asks if they can go back to his car. Cuts to them having sex, and afterwards, Jay is laying down in the back seat, talking to Hugh while he's off-camera being shady somewhere. It's a really beautiful shot and a really vulnerable moment for her. Not just because they've just had sex, but because she's sharing with him some personal, introspective daydreams about meeting a nice guy and going out with them that she had when she was younger, and her reflection of them now that she's older. Hugh then comes up behind her, and then shoves a rag over her mouth, presumably soaked with chloroform. It knocks her out after a bit of a struggle, and it's very unsettling. When Jay comes to, she's strapped and tied down into a wheelchair. Still in bra and underwear, asshole couldn't even have got her dressed. 
So she's in the chair. Hugh is walking around the perimeter of this kind of parking garage that they're in now, and he's searching for something or someone with a flashlight. He starts to talk to Jay while he's searching and tells her that while she may not believe him, she needs to remember everything he's about to tell her. This thing, he says, it's going to follow you. He mentions how someone passed it to him, and now he passed it to her. He mentions that this thing takes the shape of a person. It could be someone you know, or a total stranger. He finally sees what he's looking for. He wheels Jay over super fast to the edge of the garage where she can peer over to the hill below, and she sees a naked woman walking slowly towards them across gravel and train tracks and up this hill that separates the three of them. Jay is shocked and scared, and Hugh backs her away from the edge, telling her to get rid of this curse by passing it along, just like he did. The woman has now made her way up the hill and is now walking towards them. Hugh takes Jay and wheels her back towards the car, warning her, never go into a place that doesn't have more than one exit. It's very slow, but it's not dumb. We cut to Kelly, Paul, and Yara sitting on her porch, drinking and playing Old Maid. Yara is reading from her fabulous seashell e-reader and recites this passage from The Idiot. I think that if one is faced by inevitable destruction, if a house is falling upon you, for instance, one must feel a great longing to sit down, close one's eyes, and wait, come what may. It's like she's already ahead of what just happened to Jay, how she's about to be relentlessly pursued by this thing that Hugh passed on to her, how inescapable fate can be, and why bother fighting? So, as they're playing cards on the porch, Hugh's car comes speeding up in front of the house. Hugh, fucking peach that he is, unloads Jay out of the car into the middle of the street. Undergarments, ligatures, and all. The cops are immediately called, and a crowd forms around Jay's front yard. Friends, family, police lights, cop cars, ambulance, all outside while Jay's neighbor, Greg, and his mother watch from their window across the street. The officer interviewing Jay asks if it was consensual. She says it was. We see cut scenes of Jay in the hospital, police searching and surveying the area where Hugh and Jay had sex and she saw the entity, and Jay back at home in bed looking depressed. Jay's mother and Greg's mother are now talking at the kitchen table about what happened to her. Greg's mother asks, did she catch anything? while Jay's mom is seen spiking her coffee. Upstairs, Jay is looking at herself in the mirror. She pulls at her underwear and is just looking at herself to see if there's something different. She's then startled by a red dodgeball thrown at her bathroom window, and the camera pans back to see a young kid hiding under the window wearing a red sweater, which we can assume he's the one who threw the ball. So now Jay is in class. The teacher is reading aloud a poem by T.S. Eliot, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Jay is staring out of the classroom window, and I just want to mention how this scene reminded me so much of the scene in Halloween, where Laurie is in class and her teacher is discussing fate. Laurie looks out of the window and sees Michael as the figure in the station wagon for the first time. Jay is now looking out the window, and she finally sees this thing Hugh warned her about. It's an old woman in a white nightgown, walking towards the school building. Jay, sufficiently scared, gets up and races out of the classroom and walks down the hall towards an exit. Her pace slows. She seems to think for a minute she's okay. She takes one last glance over her shoulder, and there's the old woman rounding the corner in the hallway coming towards her. Jay books it out of there. 
She runs to the ice cream shop where her sister Kelly and Paul work together. She tells him about what she saw and how she thinks this is what Hugh was trying to tell her that night. Kelly really isn't buying it, and Paul offers to sleep over their house to comfort and protect her because he's just a super stand-up guy with good intentions. So now it's later that night, we see some stills of Jay and Kelly's house. The porch, backyard gate, the pool. Really beautiful shots, and again, for me, I'm reminded of John Carpenter's Halloween, specifically after Dr. Loomis shoots Michael, and he falls on the ground outside of the house, and they show scenes of the Thompson house, Doyle house, and Myers house. In both movies, it's quiet, empty, and still, but danger is looming. So they're having one big sleepover, but Jay can't sleep, so she goes downstairs to sit with Paul on the couch. The two start reminiscing about when they were younger and confess that they were each other's first kiss. They start talking about a time when they were all hanging out with Greg when they hear glass smashing. Paul gets up to investigate, but he says there's nothing there. He goes upstairs to wake up Kelly so that they can call the police. Jay goes to look for herself, and that's when she sees the entity. This time, it's taken the form of a younger woman who is very disheveled and is pissing herself as she's walking towards Jay. Not gonna lie, there is something about this woman pissing herself that, for me, is so unnerving and off-putting almost more than any other forms this thing takes. Jay screams, runs upstairs, locks herself in her room. Of course, no one else sees what she sees. She lets Paul and Kelly into the room, and when Yara eventually wakes up and tries to enter, the thing comes in behind her. It's now changed form again. This time, it's a giant man, dressed in white. Jay runs outside to an upstairs deck, climbs down the side of the house, and takes off on a bike. Greg, who happens to be parked in his driveway, sees her take off, with her sister and friends running after her, eventually following them himself. Jay pedals to a nearby park where they all meet, and she insists that she has to find Hugh. Greg offers to drive. They all take off in Greg's car to find Hugh, who we learn had given Jay a fake name. They arrive at where Hugh told Jay he lived, which turns out to be a dilapidated house. When they go inside, it's clear that he's been staying there. They begin going through his things and find a picture of Hugh and a girl, who some say looks like the girl Annie, who was killed in the first scene, but I couldn't really tell if it's really her. They do recognize the jacket that she's wearing. It's a letterman jacket from a local high school. They visit the school, and Jay learns Hugh's real name is Jeff Redmond. So off they pop to Jeff's real house, where she finally gets to confront him in what appears to be a thermal pajama set. With his Lloyd Christmas-style haircut and his choice of PJs, he literally looks like he's seven years old. Anyway, this is where we get a bit more backstory to how Hugh slash Jeff came into this mess himself. Greg doesn't really buy this whole thing. He thinks it's a game he's playing with Jay. Hugh says he met a girl at a bar, one night stand, and he thinks that's where it came from. He knows that this thing only walks and that the only way to survive is to pass it on through sex. He also knows that it will come after everyone in succession, down the line to whoever started it. I'm just left wondering how the hell does Hugh slash Jeff know all of this? He then tells Jay to basically get the fuck out of Dodge to give herself time to think if she wants to pass it on to someone else, because again, this thing can only walk, so it would take some time for it to catch back up to her. The kids pile back into Greg's car, and he drives them to his family's lake house. On the car ride up, Kelly asks Jay if she's thought about what Hugh said, about passing it on to someone else. 
This prompts Paul, who appeared to be asleep in the back seat, to open his eyes and listen more intently to Jay's response. Because if you haven't caught on, Paul loves Jay, feels threatened by Greg, and is literally willing to die to get laid. At the lake house, Greg takes his dad's gun and teaches Jay how to shoot, and they have a little exchange. He mentions that he should have been nicer to her, which makes you wonder what's happened in the past with them. Later on, Jay briefly mentions something to Paul that she and Greg had slept together in high school and that it wasn't a big deal. Maybe she liked him, maybe he was a jerk, who knows. So everyone's relaxing on the sands by the lake, and enough time has passed that this thing has finally caught back up with Jay. Greg walks off to pee, and you can see it in the background walking towards everyone. Up until now, no one else has seen or experienced anything close to what Jay has, or has witnessed anything other than her just freaking the fuck out. But now everyone is about to get a taste. This thing walks up behind Jay and begins to pull her hair. So even though no one can see the form that it's taken, they can see Jay's hair lifting up and being pulled by something. Paul, ever the white knight, grabs a folding chair to strike the space in front of Jay, but gets struck himself, so much so that he flies back and falls to the ground. The girls and Paul run down the beach to the shed where Greg's dad keeps his gun. Greg notices everyone scattering and runs after them. Jay grabs the gun and starts shooting at it, nearly shooting Greg in the process. She hits this thing, which has taken the shape of a woman, which only knocks her down for a second, and then it immediately recovers and she continues to pursue Jay. Jay finally just takes off out of the back door of the shed, runs back up to the house, hops in Greg's car, and starts driving away, leaving everyone back at the lake. She's frantically driving, just barely misses another car that's pulling out onto the road in front of her. It causes her to swerve off the road and into a cornfield where she injures herself pretty badly. She's knocked unconscious and looks like she breaks her arm as well because later we see it in a cast. Next, we see Jay in a hospital bed recovering with all of her friends and sister visiting. Greg is kind of just watching Jay quietly panic in bed, and you can see he decides he's going to take matters into his own hands. The next scene we see is Greg and Jay alone in the hospital room where they have sex. So clearly, Greg the non-believer is taking one for the team and opts to have Jay pass him this curse. We then see Greg chatting up some girl, so we're kind of left to assume that he's trying to pass it on and or hopefully just put Jay at ease, thinking that she's passed it on. A few days pass and Jay is still in the hospital, yet Greg has not seen this thing follow him. For me, this is a big inconsistency throughout the film with how fast this thing moves and how long it takes to show itself to the person who it's most recently transmitted to. Jay saw this thing right away, but Greg hasn't. Even if Greg did have sex with that girl we saw him talking to, enough time would have passed that she would have died and it would have followed down the line to Greg. While visiting Jay in the hospital, she directly asks him if he's seen it, and he says he hasn't. She then asks him if he believes her. He says yes, but surprise, surprise, he doesn't. Jay is finally discharged from the hospital, and once she returns home, she is very responsibly back in her pool swimming with a fucking cast on. But it's not as relaxing and peaceful as it was the first time. She's on edge, watching the perimeter, waiting for anyone or anything to come out and approach her. She's also isolating herself from everyone a bit now. 
Kelly and her friends are hanging out outside, and Greg approaches to ask to see Jay. Kelly says that she's kind of locked herself in her room and doesn't want to come out. They ask if Greg has seen anything. He again says that he hasn't, and kind of lets on that he's not really buying this whole curse thing. Paul gets his knickers in a twist and says that Jay isn't making this up. This thing broke the chair he was trying to strike it with, and he got his ass handed to him. He's not wrong, but Greg just kind of laughs it off and is like, well, we'll know sooner or later. Later that night, Jay is in her room, looking out of her window at the street, the trees, and the houses, including Greg's. She finally sees the entity walking towards his house. She watches it break in and immediately grabs the phone to try and call Greg to warn him, but he doesn't answer. This part was giving me some serious Nightmare on Elm Street vibes. You know when Nancy is trying to wake Glenn, aka Johnny Depp, up? Yeah, that part. She runs over to Greg's house, makes it upstairs, and see that the thing has now taken the form of Greg's mom. It turns to her, and this thing gives Jay this look like, don't get in my way. Jay yells for Greg not to open the door, but of course he does. Jay's not-real mom lunges on him, mounts him, and starts, like, boning him, and kills Greg in the process. Jay, rightfully horrified in any and every way, runs out of the house and drives. She drives for what I can only assume is hours. She parks in the woods and curls up into a fetal position on the hood of the car. I felt like this was a really interesting choice since, you know, you're out in the woods, there's bugs and wildlife, and you're being hunted... And I can only assume that the metal is not as comfortable as, say, the upholstered interior of a car. So she takes a little hood of the car cat nap, and when she wakes up, it's daylight. She looks through the trees and sees sand and water just beyond the clearing. In the distance, on the water, she sees a few guys on a boat. She undresses and enters the water. And we're left to assume that she made her way onto the boat and slept with one, if not all, the guys to try and pass this thing on, since Greg is now dead and she's next on the hit list. I gotta say, this is the second time she has entered water with a cast on, and this time she absolutely got it wet. I can only imagine what is happening to her skin underneath that cast. Anyway, she's back home in her room. Paul enters, and Jay mentions how this curse is going to catch up to her sooner or later. Paul, desperate as ever, offers himself to Jay for her to pass it on to. He says that he liked her too, not just Greg, and why didn't she pick him? Paul is such a pick-me dude, it's so annoying. Jay mentions that Greg didn't seem scared, and how they had already slept together before. Paul makes another pass at her and says how he wants to help. Yeah, help himself to not being a virgin anymore. Bye, Paul. So it shifts gears really quick, and the Scooby gang takes off to a local pool, apparently armed with household appliances and a gun. This is pretty out of left field, and even the director mentions how poor of a plan this is. First off, there were no clues for the kids to go, hey, this is this thing's weakness. This is how we reverse the curse. It literally goes from Paul saying in so many words, I want to be on you, to we're off to go kill this thing. I mean, I kind of like that the weakness of this entity and the cure for the curse is never given away. But the fact that they just said, hey, 
Let's lure it into a body of water and toss appliances in to electrocute it and thought that that was just going to solve this when shooting it with a handgun didn't was pretty nuts. But again, the director mentioned that that was kind of the point. I think I just wish that I got more insight to their logic as to why they thought this was a good idea, whether the weakness was revealed or not. So the kids get into this pool, plug in all these appliances, Jay hops into the pool as bait, soggy cast and all, and they just sit and wait for it to catch up to them. It finally shows up, and this time it takes the form of Jay and Kelly's father, who has been absent in the film except for in a picture taped to Jay's mirror. We don't know why he isn't in the picture, but clearly she misses him, and it's a soft spot for both her and Kelly, since she tells Kelly she doesn't want to tell her what she sees. Back to when Hugh slash Jeff first passed it to her, he told Jay that he thinks it takes the shape of people you love sometimes just to hurt you more, or at least to prevent you from running from a familiar face, one would think. So Jay's dad is walking around the perimeter of the pool and starts throwing the appliances and anything else at Jay while she's in the water. He manages to hit her with a fucking folding chair. She's bleeding, trying to dive under the water each time something is thrown to avoid getting hit. Paul runs and grabs a gun, which we can only assume is Greg's dad's, R.I.P. Greg, and asks Jay to point to it so he can shoot it, because that, you know, worked so well the first time. Paul attempts to shoot the entity, but shoots Yara instead. Thanks for nothing, Paul. I'd really love to know how they explained that one to their parents. Kelly has the good sense to grab a sheet to throw over the entity so that they can make out its shape and Paul can actually hit his fucking target. He lands the shot, but the entity falls into the water with Jay. She tries to swim as fast as she can to the edge so Paul and Kelly can pull her out, but guess what? It's one of our favorite horror movie tropes coming at ya. It's the my foot gets caught on something while I'm trying to make a run for it. The entity thingy grabs her foot and drags her under the water just as she was about to grab Kelly's hand. Paul takes a couple more shots at it under the water and luckily lands one. Jay is able to break free and get out of the pool. The next shot is one of my favorites. So Paul asks if she still sees it because to him it still looks like an empty pool. But when Jay peers over the edge, you see this blue pool filling with this bright red blood. In our next scene, all of Paul's dreams come true. Jay decides to sleep with him. Afterwards, he asks Jay if she feels different. I don't know if he's referring to the fact that she's passed it on, the fact that she slept with him and he's hoping it meant something, but either way, she says no. Here's probably the only time that I felt bad for Paul. He's definitely an idiot, but he genuinely liked her. We then see Paul driving by two sex workers, which we are left to wonder, did he pass it to them, or did he just consider it? We cut to Yara the badass and her fantastic seashell e-reader recovering in the hospital, reciting yet another relevant and profound quote from Dostoevsky's The Idiot. It reads, When there is torture, there is pain and wounds. Physical agony and all this distracts the mind from mental suffering so that one is tormented only by the wounds until the moment of death. But the most terrible agony may not be in the wounds themselves, but in knowing that for certain that within an hour, then within ten minutes, then within half a minute, now, at this very instant, your soul will leave your body and you will no longer be a person. And that is certain. The worst thing is that it is certain. 
This quote and the one she recited previously on the porch really lend itself well to the storyline. The agony of knowing that you can try and fight it, but there is an end to your life. No matter what Jay does or who she passes it on to, eventually this curse will come down the line straight back to her. And that is certain. We close out the movie with Jay and Paul holding hands and walking down the street. In the distance, you can see someone walking behind them. Is it the thing? Is it just a normal person? We don't know. And I'd like to point out that they're both wearing white at this time. Annie wore white when she died. Greg wore white when he died. And now Paul and Jay are rocking white. Does this mean that they meet their fate? Who knows? But they have each other, and there is kind of a calm, a resolve. They don't seem to be running anymore. And that brings us to the end of It Follows. So before I sink my teeth into the symbolism of the film, I do want to take a moment to talk about the soundtrack, because it is truly one of my favorites. The score was done by an artist called Disasterpiece, also known as Richard Vreeland, a music producer who's done music for video games like Fez and Hyper Light Drifter. I just have to say, I really friggin' love the soundtrack. Not gonna lie, the music is very intense at times. It definitely sets you on edge, but it's also really beautiful and really well done. I'm also a big fan of anything with a synthesizer. (laughs) At times, the soundtrack reminds me of some of John Carpenter's work, specifically the title tracks for The Fog, The Thing, and The Shape Hunts Allison and The Shape is Monumental from the 2018 Halloween remake, and a bunch of songs from the Halloween Kills soundtrack. You get the idea. Anyway, I enjoy all the little similarities to Carpenter's work that I can find, especially in this film. So I want to talk about some of the symbolism of the film because it seems to be pretty debated among fans. I've heard theories and analyses regarding sexual assault, STDs, getting older, etc. Personally, I don't feel that there's any kind of nod to sexual assault here. Jay states that it's consensual and from her account and from what we see of them actually having sex, it does appear to be consensual. But like someone who's suffered an assault, Jay has been violated. She's been betrayed. She's had something forced upon her without her consent. She looks at the world completely different now. Almost everyone is a predator. And now she has to figure out how to survive and navigate this world after this event in her life and ultimately trust again. Because this evil could be anyone and is always lurking for her. I do see how this curse, this thing, this entity that's always following her from one place to another and one relationship to another can be interpreted as an STD. And of course, more obviously, it's passed through intercourse. Hugh wasn't exactly honest with her prior to having sex, and he states that he got it by hooking up with a random at a bar. Once you contract an STD or certain STDs, they are with you forever. Literally or symbolically, they follow you into each new relationship. I think this also lends itself to the isolation that Jay feels. Contracting an STD is not something people want to speak freely about. People will shame you. People will blame you. Especially as a woman, your sexual habits or the fact that you may have contracted something, regardless if your partner was upfront about it or not, can become kind of a scarlet letter for you or the source of people's judgments. 
Case in point, right before Hugh so lovingly drops Jay off in the middle of the street, you can hear Paul and Kelly talking about Jay while they're playing Old Maid. They mention she's out on a date, and one of them says, of course she is. Almost insinuating that she plays the field a lot, and not so subtly slut-shaming her. And speaking of Old Maid, there are theories that the entity represents old age, or getting older. How death is inescapable for all of us. And how maybe that transition starts once we have sex. There's a time before you've had sex for the first time, and then there's the you after you've had sex for the first time. Sex can kind of complicate things in a way, and seems to be the springboard into adulthood. If you think back to the beginning of the film, where Jay and Hugh are playing the game in line at the movie theater, and Hugh says that he'd love to trade places with the little kid and be able to have his whole life ahead of him again, he wants to go back to a time where there really weren't consequences, or maybe consequences or complications that were on such an adult level. Or more specifically to his case before, you know, he had sex and was now cursed and being pursued by a slow-walking entity that he cannot for the life of him outrun. So I can wrap my head around it being this fear of adulthood, or growing up, or even death. But I don't buy into the whole fear of getting old, since the entity that follows Jay throughout the film takes the form of people in various ages. This movie also kind of does flip the typical horror movie sex as a cautionary tale plot device and turn it on its head. As per the director himself, sex not only brings about a character's demise, it's also their means of survival as well. Now, I just want to briefly touch upon this because the color red is thought to have some meaning in this film to kind of mark danger. We see the red light emanating from the car before Annie gets killed. Hugh wears a red shirt on both of their dates. Jay's nails are red. We see red a lot. Someone is almost always wearing something red, so it's kind of hard to tie the symbolism down to something specific like red equals something bad is about to happen. I just think based on how disorienting the film's setting's supposed to be, where you cannot place the era or season, it's just another way to always be on guard. So maybe red isn't like, okay, be ready for danger at this specific time, like get ready, the jump scare's happening now. It's more like danger is all around you, at all times. So always be on the edge of your seat. Always be looking, watching. It's always around the corner. All of this, danger, kind of always lurking, getting older, life's complexities, the inevitability of death, really ties into the quotes Yara reads in the movie, that the greatest pain for these characters is knowing that there is an end. Don't try and fight it because you can't. It's a certainty. And on that slightly bleak as fuck note, that wraps up this week's episode. Thanks so much for joining me. I'll see you next time, and stay spooky, friends. 